Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast exploring the diet culture, disinformation, dubious diagnoses, and disordered eating that are so pervasive in contemporary wellness culture, and how to avoid falling into these traps so that you can find your own true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of the books Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, and The Wellness Trap, which came out on April 25th and is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap. Hey there, welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is sociologist Karen Throsby, who joins me to discuss why sugar became demonized despite a lot of actual uncertainty in the science, how anti-sugar sentiment is bound up with anti-fat bias, the different rhetoric around sugar that's dominant in diet culture versus wellness culture, what the research really says about the supposed addictiveness of sugar, and lots more. This is a really great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But before I do, I just have a few quick announcements. First one being that this podcast is brought to you by my newest book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is available wherever books are sold. The book is a great companion to this podcast because it explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses and treatments are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap to learn more and buy the book. That's christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap, or just pop into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. This podcast is made possible by my paid subscribers at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Not only do paid subscriptions help support the show and allow me to keep making the best free content I possibly can, because podcasting is not cheap. There's a lot that goes into it on the back end, a lot of work, a lot of time, and a lot of labor by other people as well. So paid subscriptions help support all that, and they also get you great perks like early access to every episode, bonus episodes, including one that I did with Karen, this week's guest, bi-weekly bonus Q&As, subscriber-only comment threads where you can connect with other listeners, and lots more. Thanks so much to everyone who's become a paid subscriber so far, and if you want to join, you can go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Now, without any further ado, let's go to my conversation with Karen Throsby. Thanks so much for being with us, Karen. I'm really uh, excited to talk with you about your new book. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Can you start off by telling us a bit about yourself and why you wanted to write a book about sugar? Yeah. So I'm a professor of gender studies at the University of Leeds, and I've been working for quite some time now on issues around the body and things we do to change bodies in ways that try to sort of bring them in line with social norms and expectations. So I've done work on reproductive technology, on surgical weight management, on endurance sport. And I was starting to look at food much more carefully as a way, a means of changing our bodies in different ways, both in terms of performance and and size and composition. And I was thinking about the sort of so-called war on obesity and sort of noticed this shift 
that had happened sort of in the 2010s, um, where suddenly we were hearing just all about sugar. It was all about sugar. It was absolutely everywhere. Um, you were seeing sort of newspaper articles about sugar. Then all of these, these books were coming out, the sort of self-help books, the popular science books. And then we had certainly in the UK and also sort of internationally as well, lots of policies around sugar reduction start coming up around 2014, 15, 16. And it was clear to me sort of from a, as a sociologist that something was happening there that sugar was now really supplanting dietary fat as the food enemy to fight in the, in this sort of attack on on fat bodies that has been quite you know long running and so this sort of led me to then go to newspaper coverage and actually do do a more systematic search to see if my kind of impression was actually correct and i looked at newspaper coverage that had the word sugar in the headline for articles, substantial articles, so articles that were 500 words or more across nine newspapers in the UK. And what I found was from 2000 to 2020, it ticks along at a very low level until about 2012. Um, and, you know, it's just a few articles a year, nothing much. And then it absolutely shoots up really noticeably up to 2016, which is when the, in the UK a sugar tax was, in, was announced. And it was introduced in 2018. So we've got this kind of arc of just increased talk about sugar that that's then matched with new policies, with all the publication of these books. And so I decided to kind of look really closely at this and kind of and work out, you know, what's happening? What is the, the social life of sugar in this moment? So that was kind of the driving question for the book that led to, led to the research. That's so interesting. Why do you think it is that there was such a marked uptick at that time? Yeah, I mean, I think this is quite UK specific in some ways. I think there are two two reasons. The first is the, if you like, the if we call it the war on obesity, this attack on obesity that we've had for you know a couple of decades, it's really losing steam around that time because it's it's basically beset by its own failures, right? In terms of its own goals, it is a failure. So what it needs to do is constantly revive itself and sort of in a new form. And one of the ways that it does that is that it finds a new enemy. And so in this case, there was a shift from fat to sugar. And sugar became the new enemy that enabled all of those who are very heavily invested in an attack on obesity for all kinds of reasons to kind of then get behind the this act of blaming sugar. So in some ways, I think it was just the, the, the flagging of the, the attack on obesity needs to be sort of revivified every so often. And this was that moment. The second reason I think in the UK, particularly was um, the introduction of austerity measures, which were following the 2008 financial crash. We sort of had a series of measures that sort of started coming in in around 2010 under uh, David Cameron's government. And in 2012, we had the Welfare Reform Act, which basically entrenched austerity measures. So, for example, massive cuts to welfare provision, a lack of social support, and the idea that we're somehow all in this together, and yet it fell very unevenly onto the most disadvantaged. And what we get at this time is the language of what, Cameron, what David Cameron, the Prime Minister, called strivers and skivers. 
So the strivers are kind of the good, honest, hardworking citizens who need a bit of help, you know, and are contributing and doing their bit. And then we've got the skivers who are seen as the people who are kind of leeching off the off the benefit system, aren't pulling their weight. And the language of the attack on sugar, and I talk about this quite a lot in the book, maps quite cleanly onto the language of austerity. You've got the people who care about their health enough, who are seen as caring about their health enough to work hard at it, to, to give up sugar, to be as healthy as they can be. And then the people who are seen as sort of consuming in an uncontrolled way became the kind of skivers because these are the same people, the same language is used about people who were seen as consuming benefits in an uncontrolled way, were seen as consuming sugar and then costing the state money. So I think it was those two things, the failure of the, the attack on obesity and the need to bring it back to life, and this coincidence with austerity and this attack on those who were seen as not pulling their weight. That's really interesting. Another thing in the book you mentioned is that, you know, some people ended up claiming that sugar was the root cause of so-called obesity all along and that we'd been misled by the war on fat, you know, and I think that's really interesting context to this shift. You talk about people like, you know, Gary Taubes and a couple of others that you explore their work and sort of their rhetoric around this. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes. So it was we saw a, a kind of a number of people step forward to become these authoritative voices on sugar. They write kind of popular science uh, books where they sort of make this uh, a sort of scientific case or a case that claims to be scientific, that sugar was the problem all along and that dietary guidelines, you know, I don't know, the, the eat well plate or the fight, you know, those kinds of guidelines, national guidelines, were actually corrupted by the food industry is the most common argument. And, and in fact, it was sugar all along. And they often look back to some very early um, advocates of, of kind of anti-sugar, some people who, who attacked sugar in the sort of 70s. But then this is, this is revived as a kind of, look, now we can see finally there's a kind of truth to be told. And they're quite interesting because they kind of gain status an authority from being uh, people who speak against accepted truths. So they're the, the brave people who can speak out, who are going to tackle the food industry or tackle a corrupt government um, for the, to, to access this truth about sugar. So they've got this, this sort of quite rebellious sort of refusal to be silenced um, the undercurrent that goes throughout their work. And through this, they claim a certain authority, um, Gary Towers, for example, is a science journalist. Robert Lustig is a um, an endocrinologist, a pediatrician. And so they have different sources of authority through which they claim a new truth, basically, or the uncovering of an old truth. Um, and the, there's a kind of very strong certainty that underlines their narratives that sugar is the problem. Yeah, no, it's so interesting that that certainty, you know, you quote from these authors and and point out those extreme levels of certainty. I recognize that type of certainty from social media too. Like I feel like it's just rampant these days, right? And even a bit from my own first book and my own earlier writing and speaking where like, you know, I think there's without any sort of intention behind it, but just the, the incentives of social media reward that kind of 
clarity and lack of nuance and stripping things down to their their most basic and not really giving a lot of caveats or nuance or looking at the other side of things, right? And I think, you know, for me personally, in many cases, I might soften some of the language in my first book, even though I very much stand behind the ideas, I still, the way I conveyed them, I think could use a little more nuance. Same with like a lot of early social media posts and stuff. But I think that kind of certainty and bluntness is not particularly good for the discourse, but it is really good for going viral. (laughs) Exactly. It's incredibly palatable. I mean, is is how I've been thinking about it. I find it interesting because a lot of a lot of the objection to sugar is about foods, the way that sugar makes foods hyper palatable, sort of just incredibly easy to eat. And in many ways, the message, the way the message is being communicated, is also hyper palatable because the anti-sugar message, because it's it's very straightforward. Like sugar is bad, that's the end. But also, you know, if you are marketing a book. As, as in these cases, these anti-sugar books, then that you have to have a simple and accessible message. And, and that gets then reproduced in social media, which is you know, perfectly designed for sort of blunt, simple messages, so, uh, those take-home messages. What's quite interesting about these different authors is they also have to carve out a little space for themselves because it's quite a crowded field. So they each have to have something that's particular about their message, but also it has to be definitive. So we know one might be talking about sugar in terms of addiction. One might be talking about it in terms of sugar as metabolically damaging. They also often disagree on what constitutes sugar. For some, it'll be all carbohydrates. For others, it'll be simply you know added sugar into into food for some it'll be fructose and so they're kind of trying to find certainty and to carve out a space that makes their product and their identity unique and and saleable i think ultimately right well it's interesting too how there's just sort of this like piling up of arguments against sugar and they might be contradictory or like seemingly contradictory in some ways but that they can sort of coexist and work together to create this wall of supposed certainty that sugar is bad. Yes. And I kind of try and unpick this in the book. So I identified kind of two sort of key strands of thought about sugar that are contradictory, even though the message that sugar is bad is the kind of unifying message. And that's all we hear. But when you look at kind of what kind of problem is sugar, they're different. So you get it, particularly sort of mainstream government policies, etc. talk about sugar in terms of its emptiness. So it's empty calories, it's calories that bring no nutritional benefit, and that just uh, is seen as a cause of fatness, which is then seen as a cause of, you know, in the old sort of very familiar stories about disease and so on. And so it's really presented in those terms, it's empty calories, and it could so that it could be anything the goal is to reduce calories in those narratives and sugar just happens to be something that is seen as high in calories to no other benefit and so there's that argument which is very focused just on reduction eat less of it which would mean fewer calories so that very familiar narrative of calories in calories out um, that we see in the, with the diet industry but then there's this second position which is that sugar is in itself toxic that yes, it, it's calorific and, and those things, but that it is in itself toxic, that it does damage to the body, that it causes metabolic damage, that it damages organs 
that it damages you know really every aspect of the body's systems so they seem incompatible those two those two positions but what i kind of realized was that they get held together with this idea that sugar is bad and it's done by firstly talking about fatness and that fatness is treated as a known problem as a kind of well surely we can all agree that this is a terrible thing and so that then provides a sign of unifying narrative that it doesn't kind of matter what kind of problem sugar is because it's so closely associated with fatness that we just have to stop it so that's one narrative the second one is a narrative of addiction that sugar is seen as addictive and that kind of ramps up the hostility against sugar because it's then aligned with other legal and illegal drugs so people often talk about it being like cocaine and of course because it's sort of white and powdery the it's it's very visually it's very a very easy parallel to draw so lots of talk about addiction although if you actually scratch below the surface and ask what what they mean by addiction there's sort of many many different versions of what that is it's not at all clear what it means and then the third thing is a kind of nostalgia and so there's a nostalgia that runs through both the idea of sugar as empty calories and sugar as toxic um this idea that sometime in the past we didn't have this problem with sugar but now the food supply has been contaminated so if we could just return to the past it wouldn't really matter what kind of problem sugar is because it would be gone and so the two places that we look is this kind of post-war 1950s imagined ideal of very low sugar lots of physical activity children running around all the time not eating between meals and then there's which of course is a fantasy of the 1950s apart from anything else that relies on women doing an awful lot of domestic labor and home cooking and then there's a second nostalgia which is to a kind of paleolithic past very ill defined but of a time pre-agricultural revolution when we all just sort of ate according to our appetites hunted nibbled on berries for sweetness when they were in harvest and that that we should somehow if we stopped eating sugar we could return to this idealized past and so in these ways in a sense the different ways of understanding what kind of problem sugar is cease to matter because there's a kind of overarching narrative well sugar is bad and we have to stop eating it I think that's so interesting and I I see those three different narratives about sugar cross-pollinating and showing up in so many different ways in wellness culture and diet culture. You know, I think like the the notion that sugar is just empty calories, you point out that that's sort of like the mainstream discourse and that's more of like maybe typical diet culture sort of discourse and then yes, the idea that sugar is uniquely toxic and like, you know, metabolic or whatever. I think that's more the dominant discourse in wellness culture and like these wellness spaces where people are I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. So it's interesting but then the idea of addiction and the idea of like this nostalgic sort of paleolithic past kind of unifies both of those cultures, right? Like it's that's common that shows up a lot I think in both diet and wellness culture. And you know, for anyone listening who is um kind of new to questioning diet and wellness culture and is like well, isn't it bad? Like, shouldn't we all be trying to get back there? Isn't sugar toxic? What would you say? Like, because you you write that sugar is treated as being this like indisputably bad thing for health, despite a lot of actual uncertainty. And so I'd love to explore a bit what some of the uncertainties are here. 
so one of the, the ways I've approached this whole project is to never say that sugar is good or bad. And, and it's very frustrating to, to some people, I think, that I won't do that. And the reason I don't want to engage with that is that to place food in a binary like that, where it's either good or bad, and we do it all the time with food, don't we? Oh, that's a healthy food. That's an unhealthy food. That's a good food. That's I ate some bad food today. All that you know, kind of diet culture talk. That binary is so unhelpful because it only treats food according to its nutritional content. It's bad because it has calories or it's bad because it, it has a particular stimulates the system in a particular way. And it, it completely ignores the way that a food, yes, could be kind of calorific. And if you're, you know, and if that's a concern or it could have an effect on the body, but it's also profoundly social. And so, you know, when you think about sweet food and treats and, and how we use food to express sociality, to express love, to express care for people. And we share food together. You know, when you eat something, you're often eating that with someone else. And the experience of the food is not just about consuming X and Y nutrients. It's about being with others and food eating is inherently social. And so I think that good binary is very unhelpful. I think the other reason that I try and resist it is if I say sugar is not bad, as I would want to say that I really, I don't like the categorization of food as, as bad, that gets immediately read by others as me saying that sugar is good. And that I am therefore somehow, and I get accused of this all the time, that I'm somehow in the pocket of the soft drinks industry or the sugar industry. And I'm advocating for them because you're either against sugar or you're for sugar. And so my, my position on this has always been, what if we don't start there? What if, because if we start with me saying it's bad, the next question it has to be, how do we stop people eating it? Which is not a helpful question. Whereas if we don't start there, if we ask, what does sugar mean to people when they eat it? Then we can learn about its social significance. We can learn about the inequalities that are absolutely fundamental to all food consumption, including sugar. And so it opens up, what I'm trying to do with the book is to open up a new set of questions, which are about food justice and managing inequalities and those kinds of questions. And I think saying that food is a food like sugar is good or bad acts as a block to those questions, to discussions of inequality, for example. And so that's why I've kind of refused to engage with it. But it is quite interesting how it does infuriate a lot of people, I think, who want me to begin by saying it's bad before we can move on to talk about inequalities. But my point is, as soon as you say it's bad, you stop being able to have those conversations. Right, because then the conversation becomes, well, how can we stop poor people from eating it then? Exactly. Not why are there so many poor people? Right, exactly. I can relate to a lot of what you said. I think as a dietitian who specializes in disordered eating and, and one aspect of my career, you know, I wrote a book called Anti-Diet. Like I'm definitely not into diets and categorizing food as good and bad, but that does also a lot of bad faith interpretations, I think, have painted me as in the pocket of big sugar or big food or whatever, you know, and I've never taken a penny from those industries and never will. 
unfortunately, recently in the U.S., I don't know if you've seen news about this, but there were a couple of anti-diet dietitians and other dietitians exposed in a, a Washington Post expose for taking money from soft drink industry for posts saying that aspartame isn't as terrible as it's being made out to be, uh, yeah. which is true. And like the science is really nuanced on that. And I think it's important to say that the panic headlines aren't correct, but like, unfortunately, they were being paid by the soft drink industry to say that, which is super muddies the waters and is not helpful, right? You know, I mean, and I'm sure they had their own reasons for doing those partnerships. It's all super complicated. But yeah, it's it's just so interesting how black and white and binary people's thinking is about this. And when I work with people on making peace with food and healing their relationship with all foods, including sugary foods, it's like, I think it becomes such a different conversation where we start thinking about when sugar is forbidden or when sugar is out of reach or when you don't have enough food in the first place for reasons of dieting and disordered eating or reasons of food insecurity or both. It makes sugar this forbidden fruit that tastes even sweeter and that you tend to feel out of control with or want to eat to a degree that is sort of like a rebound eating from the restriction. And when you take away that kind of push-pull dynamic, it can really find its place as just one food among many and it has you know, those associations with pleasure and sociality, as you say, and also doesn't have to be such a big deal. But I think that's really radical for people who are used to thinking like sugar is bad and I don't let it, you know, through my door, let alone touch my lips or whatever. Yeah. And I think what one of the kind of ways it intersects with inequalities is who's allowed to have treats, for example. Mm -hmm. It's just a really simple <laughs> question. So one of the things that comes out in the book, and this is from, you know, like self-help books and things like that, is often quite sort of middle-class treats are seen as acceptable and in fact, sort of middle class, and it is always mothers who are the target of these discussions, middle class mothers who are, who are sort of seen buying their kids a treat are seen as being good mothers who aren't being too controlling, you know, and making their kids over, over anxious about food. Whereas poorer people who are giving their kids treats are seen as bad, bad mothers um, because there, there's no entitlement there and they're seen as having different kind of treats that don't carry the same status, a sort of a confectionery chocolate bar and a creme brulee are treated very differently in terms of acceptability. And then the questions about who's eating what. So it's very unevenly applied. And, and this is why I wanted to tie it to austerity, because the same people who are being targeted as over consumers of public resources of welfare are being targeted as over consumers of kind of low quality sugar and as somehow being incontinent as being unable to control their, their consumption. They can't be trusted with it in the way that a middle-class person can. And this comes through very strongly in the public health advice, for example. Yeah. I'm curious to, to hear more about that. You know, I'm coming from a U.S. context where we have private health care, so we don't really have the discussion around who's costing the NHS money or whatever, you know, that, that you do there. But I think that discourse is still pretty common around the world in a lot of places, and, and it's really bound up so much with anti-fat bias this idea that larger bodied people cost money and, and are a drain on the healthcare system or whatever, and that we all have to do our part or something to lose weight and not take resources away from other people. It's just so stigmatizing and shaming. And, 
you know, I know people really struggle with that. I mean, weight loss is just not attainable, you know, in a long-term way for the vast majority of people. So it's inherently going to create this sense of failure among people who are told to do that. But yeah, I'm curious to kind of dig in a little bit more into this relationship with anti-fat bias and how that shows up in the rhetoric around sugar and healthcare in general. Yeah. I mean, the UK, as you said, is a very particular context because we have National Health Service that, in principle at least, means that healthcare is free at the point of use for all. So, you know, know, we don't pay for healthcare, except we pay through taxes and national insurance and, you know, we do pay for it, but it's paid for differently. And it's seen in in the UK as a kind of national treasure. The NHS is, is very highly valued in sort of population terms. And it's seen as something that is constantly under threat. I mean, it's, it's, it has been radically underfunded, um, you know, by consecutive um, governments. And, um, and this creates tensions then, and particularly in the case of austerity, for example, there was the idea that everybody has to, you know, be careful and look after yourself so that you don't create extra cost for other people. And fatness is always framed, I mean, is always framed as being something that could be prevented, that it's a malleable issue. And therefore, people can and therefore should lose weight, which is assumed will make them healthier, which of course is also an assumption that raises a lot of questions. And so there is, we have this rhetoric and it happened through COVID actually, where COVID intersected with discourses of fatness, which is this narrative of protect the NHS was one of the slogans that the government was using during COVID, protect the NHS. And that's been used a lot in relation to fatness, that it's seen as somehow costing money that could be used for sort of more innocent people. Of course, we don't talk about that in lots of, in the sense of lots of other illnesses and health issues. So if you think about, you know, car accidents, for example, which are also preventable, you know, a skiing accident. But there is a focus on fatness where people are seen as undeserving consumers of public resources again. And in the UK, that's a very strong narrative. You will be lectured about it by doctors and it's, you know, it's people will be bullied because of this, get very poor treatment often in in healthcare settings because they're fat and won't have entitlement to treatments because of their size. So there are weight thresholds on access to some surgeries, for example. And so then sugar just tapped into this perfectly because the attack on sugar makes it seem so simple to manage. Just give up sugar. It's a single nutrient and you give that up and that will, it was really heavily weighted as the solution to the problem and to protecting the NHS. And so what that does is generate a great deal of blame on people who are fat that, you know, in ways that already isolate and stigmatize a group who are isolated and stigmatized. And it just kind of intensified when you bring it down to a single nutrient, if only you stopped eating sugar, then you just intensify that blame in ways that are just, I mean, incredibly reductive um, and and actually very abusive, I think. I agree. And I think the you know, you make the point in the book that like sugar is treated as the single nutrient sort of source of fatness and poor health and all of these things. And yet it never really functions in a 
in a single nutrient sort of way in practice, right? That it comes with other nutrients and other foods. And it's not, we're not just sitting here eating handfuls of granulated sugar. It's like we're eating food and engaging in pleasurable activities and and connecting over food. And then some food happens to have sugar. But then you also point out like that there's this discourse around like hidden sugar lurking everywhere and that you have to learn to be a sugar detective to like root it out and make sure you don't have hidden sugar in your food. But it's just so interesting that there's that singular focus, right? When we don't consume things in isolation like that. No, I mean, sugar is one of a very few things that we we just really don't eat it. I mean, you might think of some, you know, sweets, candy, um, that is probably, you know, like mostly sugar, but we really don't eat sugar on its own. And so it's in foods, which creates this. So if the task, sort of from a policy point of view, the task has been, how can we get people to eat less sugar? And often, how can we get those people to eat less sugar is, is a very common sort of inflection of that. And then what follows is an education process where people are taught how to find sugar in their diet and cut it out. And this comes um, particularly in relation to, as, as you said, to sugar that is seen as hidden. So actually, a lot of the anti-sugar self-help books and things aren't really focusing on obviously sugary foods, you know, sort of cakes, biscuits, sweets, and things like that. Instead, they, they focus, and certainly the newspaper coverage, focuses on foods that you might not expect to contain sugar, but where sugar is present. So things like pre-made pasta sauces and things like that, what savory foods, tin soups, all those kinds of foods. And then foods that claim to be so-called healthy. So things like cereal bars and things like that's so where you might um, not necessarily expect to find sugar. And then people are kind of educated through these newspaper articles and books on how to dig it out. And so you're supposed to then become hypervigilant in terms of reading labels. So there's a, an awful lot of instruction on how to read a label, how to translate a label, what sh- the different names for sugar, um, how to calculate sugar is a really is a really big thing. And then what your allowance would be. And so there's a lot of these newspaper articles where I call them the mortified mother stories, where a woman, it's always a woman, would keep a food diary for, say, for her, herself, for her kids, for her partner. And, um, and then the nutritionist comes in and sort of analyzes it and, and always kind of finds them wanting in terms of, oh, you're having too much sugar here, too much hidden sugar here. And then the women are kind of educated in how to identify where the sugar is and then root it out. And this is often done through, for example, not using pre-made products. So instead, these women are encouraged to, instead of having cereal for their kids, they'll, they'll encourage them to make porridge on a stovetop or to home bake things. So of course, what you've got here is a duplication of, is it an increase in work for women because they're having to monitor the sugar, calculate keep their own, you know, to keep records, keep diaries, um, constantly read labels, and then do the work of giving up sugar, which is replacing the food. And then none of this is recognized in any of this kind of pedagogic material as being work. It's simply the work of being a mother. It's what a mother would do. It's what a woman would do. And so the whole industry of giving up sugar is actually premised on the unrecognized work of women. And this rooting out of sugar as hidden is not an innocent pastime that falls to everyone. It's actually very unevenly weighted in terms of falling onto women 
to find the sugar and dig it out on everyone else's behalf. And then make alternatives to it at great cost to them too. Yes. Which, I mean, it all strikes me as, as you were talking about that, I'm like, oof, what a, what a time suck. And ultimately to me, feels like a waste of time having gone through it myself, having been trained as a dietitian where like 12 years ago, 15 years ago, whatever, I could have been that dietitian going into the house and telling people where the hidden sugar was, like that's what we were trained to do, you know. But then also as someone who had disordered eating myself for many years, you know, and was super obsessive about what I ate and focused on reading labels and spending so much time before going to a restaurant, scouring the menu and all of that stuff. It's just like how much time that sucks away from things that actually bring us joy and connection and fulfillment and all of that stuff. Yeah. And there's actually a quite an interesting tension here that comes out again in these stories, these sort of... um, these diary, these food diary stories, um, which is that this encouragement to become really quite obsessive about monitoring sugar and, and sort of and leaching it out of your, your diet. But at the same time, there's a whole series of warnings that you mustn't become obsessed with food because that's unhealthy. Right. And particularly in relation to children and particularly in relation to daughters, you get this message where like, so there was a case of one of the stories I talk about in the book, which is a food diary story. And one of the women whose family they look at, actually, the diet has got almost no added sugar in it. And they eat a lot of fresh fruit and vegetables. And the, the dietitian, it, it, the nutritionist is very approving. Um, but then she kind of says, ah, but you don't want your daughter to become obsessed, uh, you know, and develop disordered eating. So you need to make sure that there's treats, there's sugary treats in there. And so it's the dilemma of womanhood, really, that to be, fo- you have to focus on your body, but you shouldn't be too focused on your body. And this is being reproduced in, in relation to these foods. So, in a sense, you, the women are being taught to make this work appear natural and effortless. So, it's not an obsession. It's not kind of laborious. It's, it's just something that happens and you do it and only good things come from it. And therefore, it's not even, it doesn't even feel like work. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it also strikes me how much that is like co-opting of the messages of eating disorder prevention and anti-diet work, right? Because those messages go out there and would seem to run counter to like sugar obsession and rooting out sugar and a hyper-focus on sugar, other nutrients deemed quote-unquote bad or foods, whatever, deemed bad. But it just sort of gets like folded into this larger diet and wellness culture message where it's like, okay, now here's this other side to the razor's edge you're supposed to walk and you don't want to fall over here on this side because that's bad. Sort of missing the point of like what a peaceful relationship with food actually looks like and we don't have to walk this razor's edge, you know? Yeah, and I think that I think that what you've said about wellness and, and the wellness industry is really interesting there because one of the most common features of the self-help books that are supposed to teach you how to give up sugar is that they begin by saying, this is not a diet. <laughs> right. And which, of course, is, is straight out of the sort of diet culture slash wellness playbook. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and so mainstream diet industry uses that, that you know, slimming clubs, um, commercial diet organizations use that narrative as well. It's not a diet, it's a way of life. It's, you know, that kind of talk. And then the anti-sugar 
people are saying that this is not a diet. This is, this is a revolution. This is an investment in myself. This is all of these things that it's not a diet. It's not something as tr- what they're framing as kind of trivial attempts to, to lose a bit of weight. It's, it's something, it's being turned into something more serious, but it is at the same time completely mirroring the language of wellness culture which has kind of very masterfully done this, uh, kind of distanced itself from diet culture whilst reproducing it. Right. And while making it seem so much more important and, you know, this is like the language of revolution. Oh, it just, you know, makes my skin crawl (laughs) that they're co-opting those terms. But, you know, and I, I do think there are people out there who feel like, well, yeah, you know, there probably are some people listening who are like, but that is, sugar is uniquely bad. And there is this thing about it that, you know, we just really have to, you know, take it out of our diets and do what we have to do. And it's not as trivial as a diet and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the uncertainty around the so-called badness of sugar. And I, I think too, the scientific uncertainty is really worth exploring more. You know, personally, I've done deep dives into the scientific literature on this because I get so many questions from people about sugar. Like, you know, is it really okay to eat sugar? How much am I eating too much? You know, I'm in this sort of honeymoon phase with intuitive eating where I'm eating all the foods that were previously forbidden. I'm eating nothing but sweets. Like, am, is this okay? Am I harming my health? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I totally get it. I've been there too. And I feel like it's scary at first to come back from a a place of like totally restricting sugar and you do often swing to the other side of the pendulum and like when I've delved into the scientific literature it's so much more squishy and you know there's so many other explanations for why sugar is associated because it's really mostly just association it's not causation it's like people in the highest quintile of sugar consumption have X times the risk of heart disease than people in the lowest quintile or whatever. But then when you like look at what people are actually eating in those quintiles and you're like, what is that life where you're eating this much or you're eating that much sugar? And they're not controlling for socioeconomic status. They're not controlling for all these things that could make that difference. They're not controlling for disordered eating either, right? Because when you're in the highest quintile of sugar and consumption, it's possible binge eating disorder is a part of that. And nobody for some people, not for everyone, of course, but like nobody's talking about that or controlling for that. And the health outcomes you might have from binge eating disorder or from living in poverty and the stress and discrimination and lack of access to care and all the rest that goes along with that is probably going to account for much, if not all of those excess risks that we see in the people in the highest quintile of sugar consumption versus the people in the lowest quintile who, by the way, are not eating no sugar too. You know, I always point that out to people. It's like they're kind of eating like a decent amount of sugar, like sugar throughout the day, perhaps, or sugar, you know, desserts and sweets and yeah, stuff. It's exactly. it's not nothing. So yeah, it's just interesting to me, this sort of the uncertainties that that are there and yet just get totally swept under the rug when it comes to the discourse and and the sort of inflated rhetoric around it's a revolution, it's a lifestyle, it's this is so much more than just a diet, you know? Yeah. And I think it's important to kind of note that about who gets who gets the kind of social benefit for giving up sugar, that it, it's a very it's it's become a very kind of a middle class way of gaining status to, you know, to to be sugar free, um, to cut out sugar. Um, it's a way, but actually the people who are able to make to, to give up sugar in that way and make those claims and kind of gain capitalize on that are also the most privileged you know so that those who are advocating giving up sugar 
are the ones sort of best positioned to capitalize on that. Um, and, you know, others who are living much more difficult lives, not that someone who's middle class is not less is, you know, may also be living a difficult life, but very constrained, straightened lives, people who are very limited on resources, who have no money, uh, nothing to fall back on, a lot of stress, often very difficult working conditions, very low pay, poor housing, poor health care. To then say that giving up sugar is the important thing is actually quite insulting when there are, you know, many, many problems and, and there's lots of there's lots of sociological research on this about how, you know, food decisions are made. For example, it may be that if you are living in very straightened circumstances, you are investing in health in the present because that's all you can do, which is, for example, to make sure that your kids are not hungry, which is a form of health to not be hungry. And that may be giving them whatever they will eat that's affordable, right? So you, with obviously with children, it takes a long time for them to learn to eat something new and different. And if you haven't got any money, you haven't got time, um, the, the space for children to waste food. So you, you would give them what you know they're going to eat. And, think, and also just treats, just sometimes. So there's a story in the book that I took from a, a, a book by Prior Fielding uh, Singh, a, a U.S., sociologist and she tells a story of a woman called naya who um takes his very really struggling for money you know she's barely got ten dollars to put petrol in the car and she takes her daughter to a coffee shop and they buy two of those big kind of coffee shakes with all the cream and the toppings and things and she spends ten dollars on this and what Fielding Singh says is, you know, the, the sort of dominant narrative is here's a woman who's really poor, who is wasting money, can't be trusted. But actually, when the author, Priya Fielding Singh, asks her, you know, why she, why she bought the shake, she says that just once she wanted to be able to say yes to her daughter because she always has to say no. Wow. And I think you can't fit that into any narrative that begins with sugar is bad. But there's so much else there about what that means to her as a mother, to the child, to, you know, uh, to what it is to live in poverty. And so that's why I'm kind of just very resistant to this, this narrative that sugar is bad, because it's a narrative of privilege. To be able to give up sugar is an act of privilege. Mm. Yeah, so true. I think, too, the the narrative about sugar being addictive is so interesting because, you know, it dovetails with demonization or stigma against people who are addicted in general. And again, it's like who tends to fall prey to addiction more frequently. It's often people in dire circumstances where that's, you know, a coping mechanism that's kind of readily available. And again, it's like sweeping these discussions of privilege kind of under the rug and, and focusing on just the supposed like addictive nature of sugar and that people need to use willpower to overcome it or whatever. And I'm curious what you found in your reading of the research on so-called sugar addiction and, and how you would nuance that. I mean, the literature on sugar addiction is very, there's a couple of papers that get cited repeatedly that were experiments with, with rodents where the, the rodents were, were given. So, for, you know, some of them are given a sort of liquid cocaine, and then are given sugar, and, and if they choose sugar, 
that's read as sugar is more addictive than cocaine. And, and then actually, when you read the papers, the claims that can be made for the research is much more nuanced. For example, it appears that the, they may be seeking sugar to relieve some of the symptoms that, that heroin can be quite aggravating. And, and so, you know, and also um, people aren't rodents and you have a social relationship with these, with these foods. And so we, what I found in the literature was that there was a chain of studies that get cited again and again and again that are used to make the case, A, that sugar is addictive, and then that sugar is more addictive than cocaine, say, that it's like the most addictive thing. But what's interesting for me is then a lot of these authors who are writing about sugar as addictive also are, are pretty casual about the fact that uh, the assumption that you can give it up. And they often use their own bodies in, as an example that I was addicted to sugar and I gave it up, which is actually, if you're saying it's addictive, that's quite a self-aggrandizing statement. If it can just be given up quickly, how, you know, what does that mean to say it's addictive if you can just stop? It's also very gendered, actually, the language of addiction. And so women are often talked about as being much more likely to be addicted to sugar and finding it much harder to give up sugar, which I've always sort of found, you know, because that taps into an idea of women as, as being hyper vulnerable to sugar, a bit like children. So it's, it's a kind of, it infantilizes women. So the idea that it's addictive, I think it blurs lots of different ideas of addiction because people would say things in articles like, oh, sugar's addictive because once I've opened a packet of biscuits, I can't stop eating them. And is, is that addiction? What does that mean to claim that that's addiction? How would that compare to the substance that you can't stop thinking about, that you, you break the law to go and get the resources to, to buy it versus not being able to stop eating a packet of sweets until you get to the bottom? And so, Clearly, something is happening there in terms of, you know, it being very Moorish and, and hard to stop eating it. But the language of addiction is a very kind of big stick, I think, to wield that raises the sense of emergency around sugar. And that's how it's used. It's used, the claim that it's addictive is used to make sugar a more urgent problem by basically aligning it with tobacco. I mean, that's the other way that it connects with addiction. So the tobacco industry, you know, is very well known for having a kind of playbook for tackling attempts to legislate smoking, to ban smoking. And there's, there's a playbook of, of ways of co-opting scientists and so on. And a lot of the people writing about sugar say that it's, and there are some similarities, that sugar is like tobacco because the sugar industry is behaving in the same way as the tobacco industry. In terms of its, its co-opting scientists, the way it's advertising, the way it's creating uncertainty about what we know about sugar, these are all ways of tackling attempts to regulate. And so that's it's another parallel that gets drawn that sediments this idea that it's addictive in the same way that we would accept tobacco is or illicit drugs. So interesting. And I mean, obviously, that is problematic right in industry co-opting scientists and trying to trying to avoid regulation and i think that to me all this conversation about addiction misses such an important piece which is the deprivation part of it and when you look at those animal studies i can't remember if it's the one with cocaine or not but but a lot of them the rodent studies the rodents are deprived of food for a long time and then they seek out sugar and it's like well, maybe they're hungry and they don't feel like doing coke right now. They feel like eating, you know, like 
that's one approach that, you know, or one reading of it that I think doesn't really get discussed outside of like eating disorder and fat studies kind of circles and the deprivation inherent in people feeling like they can't stop eating, you know, before they get to the bottom of the bag or whatever. It's so clear from my personal experience and working with clients and, you know, in the literature as well that when people are well-fed and eating intuitively and, you know, following to whatever extent possible, eating when they're hungry and when they have access to enough food to be able to do that, people don't tend to have that experience, you know, that they they tend to be able to regulate more with those kinds of foods than they would otherwise when they're deprived. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I think in terms of when we're talking about industry, I think one of the sort of frustrating things, like I, I said earlier, that by refusing to say that sugar is bad, I'm often seen as sort of defending industry or I'm asked if I'm funded funded by industry. And I think, you know, in the book, I think it's very clear that, I mean, I find these industries very problematic. Their job is to make money for shareholders. That's and that and they do it incredibly well. And they are using every weapon in the arsenal in order to kind of maintain their reputation and so on. But they're also, you know, they're in a lot of these companies are environmentally devastating. They have terrible kind of labor relations. They're, you know, there's lots of reasons why we should be concerned about these companies. And I'm certainly not a friend of these companies and I'm certainly not funded by them. And I think anybody who really kind of read the book would know that. But I think it is important to to look at the tricks that they are using to market these products, the language of health, the language of wellness, the language of... So protein is the latest one. Like there's protein, everything, you know, protein, Mars bars, protein, everything protein. And these are all strategies. And I think it is good to be aware of some of the, you know, the limitations of the claims. I don't think that, I don't think to say that is incompatible with my skepticism about the attack on sugar. Right. Well, and I mean, I often think there are two sides of the same coin. You know, the food industry is in many ways the same as the diet food industry. It's the same companies that have the diet food brands, right? And it's, and diet food and deprivation can help drive that sense of like out of control and feeling like you have to have, you know, that you're you're going to eat it all. I don't really like the term overeating. I don't I don't tend to use that because I think it's stigmatizing, but you know, people feel like they're overeating or they like having a rebound basically with with these foods that were off limits and those large food companies are one and the same as the diet companies that are sort of creating this situation that sets people up to do that. And whether that's intentional or not, who knows. I don't know if people in those companies understand that relationship. I mean, some might. I think it is really problematic in that sense, too, that diet culture and diet food companies are contributing to this situation that then leads people to feel like they're irresistibly drawn to foods like sugar and sweets and, you know, all the other stuff. Yeah. Exactly. And, and you know, in the UK, we have a sugar tax, which have been applied particularly to, to soft drinks. But what's kind of interesting about that is that so lots of companies have reduced the sugar content of their drinks in order to bring it below the threshold for the sugar tax. But actually, what it's led to is what the push towards reformulation has led to is a proliferation of products. So a soft drink that you might still have, the, they might still be selling the original version, you know, the full sort of full sugar version, but then there'll be a a diet version as well or a low sugar version and so actually we've seen this multiplication of products so some you know the marketing them as sugar free is a kind of clever marketing ploy 
or as healthy or whatever language, but often the original products are also still available. So it is, I mean, they are capitalizing on it. You know, and they're very shrewd understanding of how this attack on sugar is working. Yeah, they're really playing both sides and trying to skirt out of the regulations by offering this new line, but then also yeah. keep the core product that I'm sure still sells well. Like, ugh, yeah, it's it's very clever. Exactly. So this podcast is called Rethinking Wellness. And I've been asking all my guests, how are you rethinking or how have you rethought wellness in light of your work? Mm, that's a really interesting question. I mean, I think... I was very conscious when I started this project that I didn't want to start looking at my own sugar consumption because I was reading so much about it and, it, and, and this constant urging to be reading labels and limiting my sugar. And so as a result, throughout the, I, mean, I worked on the project you know, for about five years in total, and I never actually gave up sugar at any point. I never tried giving up sugar entirely. I don't read labels and I never really, really got into that. I am kind of very closely allied with what I would think of as kind of critical fat studies in my sort of academic life and think very critically about these these things. And so I try not to, and this precedes the sugar project as I don't, I try not to weigh myself. I try not to, you know, get too caught up. I think it's hard never to get caught up in your body size and appearance. And I've tried to I've tried to maintain that, I think. And and in a sense, the critique, particularly around the language of wellness and so on, has helped me, I think, has pushed me towards thinking about how I'm treating how I'm investing in my body. So I, I'm um, I do a lot of endurance sport. I'm a long distance swimmer. And so I've been trying to focus on performance rather than appearance. You know, so yeah, am I you know, am I doing the distance I want to do? Am I doing the times I want to do? And to think in terms of wellness in that sense. I'm 55. I'm in menopause. I'm just been. I'm sort of just about at the end of going through menopause. That has, you know, huge effects on the body. The way you metabolize food, the just this, the condition of your body changes enormously. And so I'm trying. I've been trying to to focus on that and managing that rather than. Yeah, thinking in terms of weight. And I think with the sugar project, I had to do that quite deliberately because I was reading about fatness all the time and this anti-fat. And then when, I think when you read a lot of anti-fat talk, even when, like me, you have a very critical view of it, it is very hard to resist. And you do find yourself in, in those moments thinking, oh, yeah, I am a bit, I should probably do something about that. You know, and I think it's a kind of warning as well that it sneaks in there, even if you are like alert to it, you start having those thoughts. And so I actually, I guess my investment in wellness, if you like, was my rethinking of it was to kind of try and actively resist those, those feelings of, you know, oh, actually, yes, while I'm at it, I should lose a bit of weight. That's so interesting. And I definitely identify with that. I had a baby a year and a half ago. And, right. you know, my body changed a lot as a result of that. And, and you know, it's even with years and years of anti-diet eating disorder recovery, and then anti-diet work as a dietitian and all that stuff, it's still, you know, the body image stuff 
still comes up sometimes and that's something to navigate. I think about, I don't know if you've read Abigail Sagi and yes. Frederick, you know, the, yeah, what's wrong with fat and their their research on like the frames, like anti-fat frames in newspaper articles. So I, for anyone who hasn't heard of this, I'll link to the study in the show notes or there's a couple of studies, but they showed people these different like constructed articles that were, they had different framings. One was like, obesity is bad and it's a personal responsibility and people need to, you know, lose weight for their health and blah, blah, blah. And then another one was like a health at every size message with, you know, messages about body positivity, et cetera. And then they tried one that was like, obesity is bad, but don't stigmatize fat people, you know? And it was like adding this anti-stigma message and found that even when the anti-stigma message was added, merely reading that one framing fat as bad had some negative impacts on people's views of larger body people and like willingness to discriminate against them. Yes. And I mean, I think for me, it's about acknowledging that you can never step outside of the social. I mean, it's a very kind of sociologist's point, but you can never, I can critique the social world in the world that I encounter, and I can think critically about it, but you can never step outside of it. And so I think one of the things that I see in critical fat studies or health at every size communities is actually you. And, and when I talk about this with students, there's often people will express a lot of guilt that they're not able to quite relinquish the desire to be thinner. And then it's just more guilt. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that we cannot step outside of it and it's there and you can take all kinds of steps to try and mitigate against it. But to have those thoughts that are actually, I wouldn't it be great if I lost some weight? It's not a failure. It's not another source of guilt to be dealing with because that's, that's how the social world works. We're in it. You can't escape entirely from it. You can only kind of engage critically with it, I think, and then try and enact change. It's a really helpful message and I think a good note to end on for this main episode. So thank you so much for everything you shared. Can you tell people where they can find your book, the title, and how they can learn more about you? Yes, the, the book is called Sugar Rush, Science, Politics, and the Demonization of Fatness. It's published by Manchester University Press earlier this year. It's available online through the, Man the Manchester University Press website would be a good place to go to to purchase the book. Amazing. We'll put a link to that in the show notes as well so people can find it. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Karen. It's a pleasure talking with you. And uh, if you have a few minutes, I'd love to have you stick around for the bonus episode. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me on today. So that is our show. Thanks so much to our amazing guest for being here and to you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support the show by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, early access to regular episodes, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on this show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com slash questions for a chance to have them answered in the Rethinking Wellness newsletter or on a future podcast episode. This episode was brought to you by my new book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is now available wherever books are sold. 
Just go to christyharrison.com slash the wellness trap to learn more and buy the book, or just go into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. If you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. Learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is executive produced and hosted by me, Christy Harrison. Mike Lalonde is our audio editor and sound engineer, and administrative support is provided by Julianne Watasek and her team at A-Team Virtual. Our album art is by Tara Jacoby, and our theme song is written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Thanks again for listening. Take care. <laughs>